Welcome to Your Day Brighter, the podcast. Real stories, real conversations, and real reasons to have hope in this world. Hi, I'm your host, Tracy Tiernan. I'm excited. We're going to be talking today to Elisa Childers. I'm, I'm thrilled for you to hear this conversation. Elisa is a brilliant woman. She's a, a blogger, an author, a speaker, and you may know her name. She was also one of the original members of the girl group back in the 90s, Zoe Girl. But Elisa has gone on to uh, serve God in different ways and now just a brilliant apologist. And she helps people, just regular people like me, uh, regular people like you, navigate and try to discern the times and the culture and some of the ideas that are prevalent in our culture today. How do we understand how those ideas really integrate or do they not integrate in my biblical faith? How can I be assured that the things that I'm taking in and that I'm maybe buying into and believing are really representative of a solid biblical faith? I just want to invite you into this great conversation. You know, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not, I'm so glad that you're here. Come with an open heart and an open mind. Let's jump into the conversation right now. It really starts with Elisa telling me her story because just like the rest of us, she also went through a period where she had lots of doubts. Let's jump in. Elisa, I'd love to start with your personal story because you have shared this very transparently, um, growing up in a Christian family, a very strong believer, but even you uh, were challenged with a a faith crisis in your 30s. Can you tell us about what, what all happened then and how that kind of sent you on this trajectory to really want to get back to a foundation of biblical truth? Yeah, well, Tracy, thanks so much for having me on today. Um, Yeah, man, talking about doubt is just so near and dear to my heart because it's something that I didn't really experience much of growing up. I grew up in a Christian home. We went to church all the time. Uh, Looking back, I, I realized that I was raised by really authentic Christian believers. Like my parents modeled a very genuine faith for me. I regularly saw them reading their Bibles. They read their Bibles with us. We yeah. prayed. Prayer was such a big part of our home. Repentance, the whole thing. But also my mom, uh, it was really important to both of my parents that we were exposed to people who didn't have all the things that we had. So we were out doing homeless ministry and street evangelism just my whole life. And so I, I had such a wonderful experience with Christianity. I loved the Bible. I, as long as I have learned to read and write, I have loved reading and studying the Bible. Uh, so I think I can look back and say, I don't even remember a time before I was aware of Jesus and the presence of God and how much I loved his word. When I read the Bible, it was like, I just knew that this book spoke truth. I knew this was God's word. So I never really doubted it. I, I, of course, doing street evangelism, I would meet a lot of people who didn't believe it, but none of their claims really shook my own faith because, well, I just expected unbelievers to not believe, right? So I, I yeah. And so, um, yeah, like you mentioned, I was in Zoe Girl for a while and uh, touring the country and even certain parts of the world. What a great experience that was. 
And then it really wasn't until a few years after Zoe Girl came to an end. Uh, we had all gotten married and we're starting to have kids. So I found myself at home with a new baby and I was invited by a local church to come sing and do some music there. And so we, my husband and I went and um, we just connected with this church. And I know that a lot of your viewers will relate with this feeling when you just find that place where you love the community of people, you feel loved, you feel accepted, uh, you are ready to do life and you love the pastors and just everything about it. And that that's really what we experienced when we went to this church. And so we started attending. And after about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller group. There's maybe 10 to 12 of us. And he described it as kind of an inner circle type study and discussion group. He compared it to seminary. He said, you know, if you come to this class, it was supposed to last four years. He said, if you do this class, you, you will get a seminary level education. And so this wow. sounded really exciting to me because yeah. although I had really experienced a lot of Christianity and the, the reality of the gospel changing people's lives, I had really never just been challenged intellectually uh, with my faith, I, I wasn't aware of some of the intellectual arguments for the existence of God or the truthfulness of Christianity. And so I was really, really excited to start to learn some of that stuff. Sure. And so when the class started, um, the pastor revealed to just this smaller group of people that he was really an agnostic. So he wasn't sure uh, if the things he was preaching on Sunday were really true. And so this was really the first time that I experienced doubt. And, and this was as a 33, 34 year old woman for the first time. Was that scary? Oh, it was terrifying. I mean, all because for me, all of these beliefs that I had held so dear, these weren't just intellectual propositions. These weren't just boxes that I checked off to go to heaven. These were life and death beliefs. I had a relationship with God. Yeah. And, uh, and so when, when all of these claims that really sounded a lot like the claims atheists make were brought up in class and then we would study and we would discuss these things. Um, I would kind of, I would try to fight with the pastor a little bit. I would try to kind of refute what he was saying. And, um, and so it really started to shake my own faith. And so my husband and I decided that we were going to leave the church because we didn't want to raise our kids there. So after about four months, we left that church. And it was really then that all of the doubts that this pastor had planted really began to take root in my own heart and they began to grow. And then I really started to doubt what I had believed myself really for the first time. Hmm. And it was really, it was really difficult. It was scary. In fact, I use this metaphor in my book where it felt like I had been thrown into this stormy ocean, but there was nothing else around. I was just dog paddling and looking around for a, a boat or a buoy or a life jacket or something. And there was just nothing. And oh. uh, I really felt like I was just drowning in doubt. It was a, it was a really dark time. That's pain, uh, no anchor and just just yeah. out there flapping around. And I know so many people can relate to how that feels. Um, a real crisis of faith has this whole thing that I have built my life on and believe with every fiber of my being. Is it falling apart? Um, Elisa, obviously, it did not fall apart um, for you. Um, you were able to be honest about your doubts and you went on a truth seeking um, I'm going to call it a mission, but um, you really dug in. 
can you tell us what that process was like? Because uh, I think for so many people, when they have doubts, a couple of things can happen. Um, first of all, you can pretend that you don't have them. Mm-hmm. You just stuff it and you keep saying all the good Christian things that you're supposed to say and smile and praise the Lord. And then one day your life blows up and you have no idea what happened. And it's it's because your faith had become hollow. You weren't being honest with God. Um, that can happen. Um, also, if you're doubting your faith, you can start looking for other ideas that you might like better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because the gospel is confrontive yeah. and truth is confrontational. And it's it's not all about what makes us feel good. We, we hear these little buzzwords, and I, I know you'll teach us about this today, about the deconstruction of faith mm-hmm. and the reconstruction of faith and how even some ideas um, that might fall under the umbrella of progressive Christianity, which I don't know if uh, I'd love to introduce our listeners to what that even means, how how you were able to navigate through that and find your way back uh, to Jesus. Tell me about that. Well, I, I go back to the darkest moment that I remember. Oh, it was I was in my daughter's bedroom and I had so I had a toddler and I was pregnant with my second child at this time. So this was it's already kind of a, a weird time in life anyway. Yeah. And I remember just sitting in the rocking chair, rocking my daughter to sleep. And uh, I would, I would sing hymns, so, but, but the, the weirdest thing about singing these hymns is that over the course of the four months that I was in this class, all of the things that I had believed that I was singing in the hymns was, was deconstructed. You mentioned deconstructions. It was just like picked apart, but it was so many things. It wasn't just one belief or maybe just the resurrection. It was just everything. It was biblical reliability. Do we have an accurate copy of the Bible? It does the Bible tell the truth? Uh, does it have a bunch of contradictions and errors? Did the resurrection really happen? Was Jesus really born of a virgin? Does any of that even matter? Mm-hmm. So because of all of those almost like rapid fire questions had been thrown at me, um, with, by the way, uh, a lot of information that leaned in favor of sort of discarding those things. Like, it's not like we were just asking the questions to get to the bottom of the truth. The questions were being asked essentially from a heavily skeptical place. So a lot of the information being presented, the books that we were reading were coming from a more skeptical perspective. And so with all of these rapid fire claims, uh, I just remember getting to the point where I really wasn't just doubting all of those things, but because of all those things had become destabilized. I mean, I was really questioning whether or not God exists at all, because when I would look back at my life, my main proof that I had that God was real was that I believed I had felt his presence, you know, at a, at a camp meeting or at a Bible study or a worship service. And yeah. I would feel that presence of God. And that was like my most hardcore proof. But I even remember there was a class in which the pastor was suggesting that, you know, everybody has that and we can recreate that feeling. In fact, you feel the same feeling like that when you hear a great song or watch a movie. And if I was really honest, I, I was like, well, yeah, it is very much a similar feeling. And how do we adjudicate what is the presence of God and what is just our our emotions responding to something or synapses in our brain firing in response to some kind of sociological stimuli? And so when that kind of leg was knocked out from under the table, so to speak, I found myself really floundering, wondering if God exists at all. So as you kind of hinted at earlier, what I did do was take those doubts to God. Uh, yeah. I remember praying a prayer that sounds eerily similar to the 
the man who came to Jesus who had the son that was demon possessed and the demon kept trying to kill his son by throwing him in water and in fire. And the father was just so desperate. And he asked Jesus, you know, if he could, if he could do something for his son and Jesus kind of questions him. And the man ends up saying to Jesus, I believe help my unbelief. So it's sort of this, this paradox, really. He's saying, I believe, and I don't believe, so you got to help me believe. And so I felt like I prayed a lot of prayers like that. So I remember asking God, God, I don't know anybody who can answer these questions. If you're real, if you exist, you have to send somebody or some, some information my way. Because one thing I did think about was for every bit of information that pastor had and the people in the class had and the writers of the books that we were reading had, for every bit of that information, there's somebody else out there that had access to the same information that's come to a different conclusion. So before I do anything, I'm going to find some of those people. They've got to be out there somewhere and, and judge between the two. Uh, and so I was just begging God, if you exist, you have got to help me. And so I remember just driving in my car one day and fiddling with the radio. And, and I heard this program where there was a man answering skeptical questions from college students. And it was as if he was taking each claim that this pastor was making, claim after claim after claim, and answering them. And, and the funny thing was, is it wasn't just like he was on the defense and kind of sort of smoothing over the, you know, the skeptical question. He was demolishing these arguments. And mm -hmm. I found what he was saying to be so much more compelling uh, from a factual standpoint, historical standpoint, scientific standpoint, logical standpoint, ev from everything that the pastor was saying. And so I was like, okay, this, this is the pool I need to be swimming in. So, um, through that, I found all kinds of different apologetics ministries I started to study. I started auditing classes at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and the professors there were just amazing. You know, I'm just the stay-at-home mom, and I'm sending in all these questions, and they're so patient to help and answer. And so God really rebuilt my faith from, from that point on. And so I, I studied fairly intensively for, I would say, about five, four or five years uh, before I even started a blog or any kind of public ministry, because I didn't even know that I was going to be doing that. So I can't help it, but wonder how many folks, when they have these doubts and um, all these different ideas and they get confused and they're, they feel like they're losing their faith. If one of the mistakes that we make is we study more um, all of the other ideas. Yeah rather than going back to, you know, the word and, and finding out, well, it's not just because the Bible tells me so. Why is it, why is the Bible true? Why, you know, going back to this yes. um, instead of like intensely seeking whatever other idea that's out there. You know, I can remember telling a friend of mine who is passionate about Buddhism for a while is no is no longer but for a while was and and i i i never felt like i had enough information um to debate theology but i had a great faith and and an understanding of the word and i would just say to my friend have you just have you just tried jesus have you just tried investigating jesus yeah. um, because if he is who he says he is he's all you need, <laughs> you yeah. know, getting to know him and, and getting to know what he, what he even said about the word. Can we take one, just one of those ideas, Elisa, 
yeah. that the pastor so long ago made you confused about. Yeah. And now when you started to study it, you just went, whoa, and you were immediately anchored again. Well, let's let's talk about the Bible because yeah. well, let's be honest, that was the main thing on the chopping block because I think that if you can get rid of this authoritative objective source of truth that people are supposed to obey, if you can just move that aside or discredit it in some way, then well, you can just make it whatever you want it to be. You can kind of write your own rules. And so in class, a lot of the, I would say, intellectual attacks had to do with uh, the historicity of the Bible, the reliability of the information in it, the, like I mentioned before, the, the transmission of the manuscripts. And so very early on in my study, I, I became almost obsessed with trying to figure out how we got the Bible, uh, why, how, why we know we have the right books, was it transmitted accurately? And so just to take one uh, element of, of that, let's just take a look at the transmission. So this is something I had no idea about. I had no idea how the Bible got from Paul's pen to my lap at all. <laughs> so that, I actually ended up auditing uh, seminary courses on textual criticism. That's the study of how we reconstruct, you know, uh, ancient material when we don't have the originals anymore. Uh, and so like a lot of that class was even in Greek, but I didn't even care. I just still listened because I was just wanting so desperately to know that I could trust at least that what was sitting in my lap was what was originally written. I mean, we can get to the historicity and the reliability of what they wrote after that, but we got to know we have an accurate copy first. Yeah. And so what I was just astonished to discover was that, you know, if you compare, let's just take the New Testament. If you compare the, the manuscripts we have with the New Testament to virtually any other classic work of literature, the, the stability of the New Testament just dwarfs all the other ones. And so in textual criticism, there's a couple of questions that are being asked. It's, it's, do we have early manuscripts, you want the, the manuscripts that are earliest to the original mm -hmm. because those there's going to be less time for legend to develop. But you also want um, the, the ones that are earliest and most accurate. So, I mean, textual critics get into all kinds of different variables and factors. They can even tell by reading a manuscript when the scribe started to get tired. And so wow. I would hear claims that, oh, did you know, like the New Testament, there's like half a million mistakes in the New Testament. Some of you may have even heard claims like that, of 400,000 to 500,000 uh, you know, differences. So how could we possibly know what it says? And so one way that I began to study this was I, I took that question. Okay, these four or 500,000 differences between all the manuscripts, what does this mean? And I wanted to figure out what are, what are the facts that all the scholars agree on from the atheist and skeptical ones to the conservative ones. Cause it's easy to find, you know, some conservative guy that's going to tell you what you want to hear on the same side. You can find some atheist or liberal guy to tell you what you want to hear. So I want to know what did they all virtually agree on? And what I found was that they agreed on the number of differences between the manuscripts and the amount of manuscripts we have virtually the dating of the manuscripts. And I thought, well, that's a really good place to start. So the question then is what does this all mean? What does this all mean? <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this conversation with my guest, Elisa Childers. Elisa's deep dive into textual criticism and just an understanding of where did the Bible even come from? How did it get to be 
the Bible, some of the, the things that she really studied to address her doubts. And if you've got doubts, I want to encourage you. Uh, Elisa's got a, a new book out. Uh, it's coming October the 6th. It'll be officially released. It's called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Uh, really fascinating, um, fascinating stuff. This conversation is just sort of a, a little glimpse at some of the things that Elisa addresses in her book. But just so you know, um, God is okay with your questions. You can come to God with all of your questions. In fact, you read the Bible and you will see people of faith have questions all the time. Hang with us. Elisa's going to get into some of the core tenets of the Christian faith and how some of the ideas that you may be hearing from some very well-loved speakers and authors uh, may be in direct contradiction to what followers of Jesus really believe. So keep listening, keep that heart open, and let's get back to it. What does all of this mean? So with the New Testament, we have over 5,000 manuscripts in Greek, and that's not to mention the uh, you know, 10 or 12,000 we have in Syriac and Latin and all this. Now, just, just to give everybody an idea of, of the comparison, I think uh, Homer's Iliad is the second most reliable ancient manuscript. And if we have 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, I, I'd have to look back, but I think there's something like 500 to 1,000 of Homer's Iliad. And that's the, the most well-attested other than the New Testament. So that's just the number of manuscripts you have. So regarding the differences even heavily skeptical scholar Bart Ehrman will tell you, and I have a quote of, of his in my book from his blog, where he'll even say, look, the vast majority of these differences don't make any difference as far as what the text is saying. So what we're looking at are wow. spelling differences. Maybe a word gets switched. The one manuscript might say Jesus Christ. The other one might say Christ Jesus. Um, you know, there was no dictionary in ancient Greece, so people spelled words different ways. So every time there's a difference like that, some of these heavily skeptical scholars are saying, well, hey, that's a mistake. You know, that's a mistake in the manuscript. So when you get rid of all of the, the we call them variants, not mistakes, but the differences between all the manuscripts, when you get rid of all the ones that don't affect the meaning of the text, what you're left with is just a very small handful of uh, verses that might word it differently in different translations. Sure. There is, you know, honestly, there's there's maybe anywhere from 0.5 to 3% of the New Testament where scholars aren't 100% positive which reading is entirely accurate. But here's the good news. They know which ones they are. It's not like you open your New Testament and go, oh, gosh, I really hope that's not, you know, a mistake or something like that. In right. Fact, you have a study Bible. All of these are footnoted in your Bibles and have been for years. And so I think what ends up happening is heavily skeptical scholars end up making much ado about, uh, you know, nothing. Because essentially, even if and even out of that 0.5 to 3%, if you even got rid of those and removed them from your Bibles, you still have the core tenets of Christianity. You still have the gospel. They don't they're not going to uh, affect a core doctrine in the way that it would change it in any meaningful way. Right. And so that was one of the first things I discovered. And so I was so excited to, to learn that, even from heavily skeptical scholars saying, hey, I'm going to be honest here, the vast majority of those four to 500,000 differences 
don't affect the meaning of the text at all. And so I think that um, an honest person who's really looking at this will will at least take that into consideration. So that was that was one just one little thing that was exciting for me to learn. I love that. I wonder how many people are their minds are just going, oh my gosh. See, that gets me excited. Um, yeah. The more that you dig in and you find out about the Bible, about the um, just an infallible word of God, uh, the more that you will conclude that there's there's nothing like it <laughs> and yeah. that you can absolutely rely on it. Can we talk a little bit about um, progressive Christianity? Folks that don't know, Elisa has an amazing podcast where you just address the topics of the day head on. Uh, and if you've wondered about some of these different ideas and how they integrate with, with uh, your biblical Christian faith, um, you deal with it. And you deal with it in such, this is what I love about you. You're, you're winsome. You're gracious. You're, you're not angry. You actually have conversations about things. <laughs> um, you know, we, we are in, gosh, in such a, a strange time right now where yeah. people seem to have lost the ability to be able to just uh, have a conversation about something that, that maybe there's not agreement on and, and to do it in a way that's helpful, where at the end of the conversation, you've maybe both learned something and maybe even drawn a different conclusion. You're a, a masterful communicator and you're great at that. So um, check out Elise's podcast. And we're going to talk about your book in a moment too. So the book is coming out October 6th. It's called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. I just ordered my um, pre-ordered my copy today. What is progressive Christianity? Well, it might benefit the viewers to know that the church in which I took part of this small discussion and study class, after a few years, they went on to identify themselves as a progressive Christian community. And so uh -huh. I believe that was the first time I'd heard that phrase. Uh, and so essentially what I realized now and what I realized after the fact was that that class and a lot of other things that were happening all over the country, that, I mean, classes like that were happening online and in, in chat rooms, on social media, in churches, where people were asking different questions than Christians had asked for a while. And so uh, many of your listeners may remember the emergent church in the late 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of people think that kind of died out and went away, but it really didn't. What ended up happening is uh, evangelical gatekeepers kind of wrote some reputations when I, I remember when Rob Bell's book Love Wins came out and John Piper tweeted farewell Rob Bell and and kind of just kept those those guardrails up and so people thought that the emergent church died out but it really didn't in fact in 2012 one of the leaders of the emergent church Brian McLaren uh, wrote that they didn't really go anywhere, but they just sort of reassembled online and they they found each other. Uh, and so what I was a part of in that class was was a part of the, the tail end of that emergent movement, which was a movement of people that were really questioning not just the methods of how we can reach people in a postmodern world or, or how we can communicate better or be more missional or something like that. But they, they started that way, but then they began to really question core tenets of the faith. So all of us will recognize that some beliefs are more important than others, right? I, I think most Christians would agree that, you know, whether the gifts of the spirit have continued or not is what we might call a secondary issue. Not that it's not right. important. I have opinions, right? But right. What, 
what I started to see happen in this church and among progressive Christians that, by the way, I began to see pop up on my Facebook newsfeed everywhere. What I, what I noticed though, was that all of the lines were blurred. So there was no longer these like first tier uh, discussions and then second tier issues. Everything was just up for grabs. And wow. so I went on a quest to say, okay, what is Christianity? Because there are things we can disagree about and still be brothers and sisters, but there are other things we can't and still call ourselves brothers and sisters. So what, what are those things? And so I decided to go all the way back to the very, very beginning and discover what the earliest Christians thought the gospel was. What, what did they think Christianity actually was? And then take what they believed and trace that through church history. Of course, we've seen the church drift off from time to time, and then there's corrective measures or reformations and things like that. Um, but what, what is Christianity? It has to mean something. We can't- Can you answer? I know you can. I've heard you can say it so succinctly, like what is that very, very back to the beginning, traditional Christianity. What is the gospel, Elisa? Well, if we go back, uh, you know, a lot of people think when I'm talking about creeds that I'm talking about the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. I'm not talking about those creeds. What a lot of Christians don't realize is that embedded within our New Testament are dozens of creeds that are that predate that New Testament material. So for example, the earliest creed in Christian history, it comes from, we find it in 1 Corinthians 15, three through, I think it's three through six. But this isn't just a part of 1 Corinthians 15. This is actually a creed that Paul records for us. You'll notice language where Paul says, for I delivered to you uh, what was given to me. And when you see language like that, that in, in, the, in the Jewish context, that's Paul tipping his hat to you saying, I'm actually going to give you a creed that I received from someone else. And so many scholars, even highly skeptical scholars, will place this creed within three to seven years of Jesus' resurrection. So of course, well, 1 Corinthians 15 being written in the mid fifties, right? So this creed though is coming from uh, the, the three, possibly even three, some even put it earlier than that, but I always try to be sort of in the middle with my numbers so I don't get too extreme on either side, but three to seven years after Jesus' resurrection. And so Paul says this, he says, uh, this is what's of first importance. And so he's essentially saying, okay, listen up, because these are things we can't agree to disagree about. And so in that creed, Paul records that we believe that Jesus died for our sins. So right there, within three to seven years of Jesus' resurrection, we have Christians affirming the atonement, that yeah. Jesus didn't just die at the hands of an angry mob or because he spoke truth to power. I mean, certainly all of that was in play, but the reason he died was for our sins. So there was some sort of substitutionary sense in which Jesus was taking our sins and cleansing us from our sins or substituting himself for us. So Jesus died for our sins. And then it says in accordance with the scriptures. Well, that's of course a reference to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Then Paul goes on to say that he was buried and that he was raised. Now the burial is an interesting thing. Why would you mention the burial in a creed? Well, think about it. It's the proof that he was actually dead. So mm -hmm. Jesus died for our sins and was buried. So proof he died. And then that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. So twice in this creed, Paul mentions in accordance with the scriptures. So I, you know, Christianity is certainly a lot more than that, but it can't be any less than that. Right. So 
there in the earliest creed, we've got the atonement of Jesus, his bodily resurrection, a high view of scripture, Christians submitted to the truthfulness and the authority of the scriptures right there from the very, very start. And so we now, of course, as church history went on and persecution settled down and Christians had, uh, you know, the ability to sit down and work out some of these other doctrines, but they're all there in the New Testament. And so uh, I just think that it's really exciting to discover some of this stuff because in the progressive class, I was told that if you viewed the idea that Jesus died for your sins to pay some kind of a price or to take your sins on himself, well, that makes God into a, a cosmic abuser. And so in the progressive church, largely the atonement is cast aside and actually vilified it. They believe that to believe that about the cross vilifies the moral character of God. Mm. And so that was super confusing. But then going back to those earliest Christians and even to Jesus himself, this is a super exciting, just little nugget of truth, right? So why did Jesus think he was dying? Even if Christians started to believe that three years after his death, well, go to the upper room the night before he was betrayed and he institutes the new covenant. He says, in my blood. So right, I mean, the significance of that, when you understand the Jewish context within which he said that, is he's comparing what he's accomplishing on the cross with the entire Old Testament sacrificial system in which they had guilt offerings and sin offerings, offerings that 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 uh, satisfied the wrath of God, uh, offerings that removed the guilt of sin, uh, all substitutionary elements to those offerings. And Jesus is saying, then the coolest thing is Isaiah 53. If you read Isaiah 53, you find language of payment. Whoever this suffering servant is that Isaiah is prophesying, is he's taking the sins of the world upon himself. It pleased God to crush him. It's, it's God's will that this is happening. He's paying for sin. It's being accounted righteous for those who put their trust in him. Well, right there in the upper room, Jesus quotes that prophecy. And he says that that prophecy must be fulfilled in me. So right then and there, Jesus is saying that Isaiah 53 is about him. So yes, Jesus believed he died on the cross for our sins. And, you know, I know for most Christians, this doesn't sound controversial. I'm sure a lot of people are listening, thinking, well, who would disagree with that? But there really is this growing movement of Christians who are saying that's cosmic child abuse. We're not, we're not here for that. And so, uh, so that's just one element of the, the, the sort of atonement theology that we see in the progressive church. And, and is it true that, so the idea of progressive Christianity, um, is suggesting that our understanding of who God is is growing and getting better. Like we know more about God now than Paul did, uh, for example, um, that they only knew this much, but our, our capacity to know him and understand him is ever e evolving and growing. That's, that's um, absolutely right. Yes. In fact, Ryan McLaren, who I mentioned earlier as being the father of one of the fathers of the emergent movement, wrote a book called A New Kind of Christianity. And in that book, he was talking about the Bible. And he said, you know, we, we can look back, I'm going to paraphrase him because I don't have the quote in front of me, but he says, essentially, we can look at scripture and we see the evolution of our spiritual ancestors' best understandings of God in their time in their places. So in other words, he's he's saying you can you can pick up a scripture and kind of dust it off like a fossil and you can learn about what those people believed about God, but that's not really God speaking. So 
when you read Leviticus, just time after time after time, it says, you know, God spoke to Moses and said, or thus saith the Lord, or the Lord said. It says that all over the place in Leviticus right. and other books. But according to progressive Christianity, that's not necessarily God talking. That's just whoever wrote that down. That was their best understandings of God. And so when we look at something like some of the more difficult passages, like when God commands Israel to go in and wipe out the Canaanites, according to progressive Christianity, well, God didn't really command them to do that. That's just what they thought God would want them to do. And so you're right. Essentially what that does, and Brian McLaren says this in this section of his book, he says, we have now come to a higher and wiser view of God. And so he's saying we can look back on those things. And so that's why in progressive churches, you'll hear people say, well, I disagree with Paul on this issue, and I disagree with Peter on this issue, and I think, you know, Moses got this wrong, and, and who you know, this prophet got that wrong. And so it's very relativistic, and it's based on your own sort of moral intuition. What you feel ah. God would do becomes your authority rather than scripture. That's a very important point. What you feel God would do rather than scripture. Uh, and the truth is um, how God has revealed himself through the word of God. There's a lot of things in here that make us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so what I see with a lot of the progressive movement is we want to feel better about it. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. just God wouldn't do that. That just seems really wrong and mean. And so I'm imposing my own sense of, I love what you said, moral intuition um, and deciding now that, no, I have a higher view. God certainly wouldn't do that. But really what it is, it's a very subtle deception. It's really a higher view of us. Yeah. Um, you know, and actually, no, I know better than this ancient book. I, I've evolved and I have a better understanding because surely he wouldn't do that. Boy, if everybody just keeps putting their opinions on it before you know it, you've got you've got nothing to stand on nothing to stand on. This is really an important stuff for us to, to address, to dig into, to not be afraid of. I know I have to wrap up my time with you. I want to get to uh, telling people about your book. You can pre-order the book now. Uh, there's, if you go to my website, alisachilders.com slash another gospel, there are links where you can pre-order that at all kinds of different platforms. I encourage uh, all of you guys to do that. I, I pre-ordered my copy today. I'm just fascinated by your story and by uh, just the way that you're helping us to not be afraid to question. Don't just take in everything that everybody's throwing at you. Don't be afraid to question it. Also, don't be afraid to talk to God about your doubts um, and the things that you're struggling with. He can handle it. Can you talk right to people right now, Elisa, as we wrap up? Who are struggling with a crisis of faith, um, people that are going through hard things, um, how would you encourage them to, to talk to the Lord about it and to process their doubts? That's a really good question. And I do have such a heart for, for people going through doubt because I've been there. Uh, in fact, Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. This is actually something that's very near and dear to Jesus' heart as well, as mm -hmm. we see exemplified through John the Baptist. I mean, we're talking about a guy who heard the audible voice of God, baptized the Son of God, touched God with his hands, and saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. I mean, if there is anybody in all of history that has no reason to doubt at all, it would be John the Baptist. But John the Baptist found himself in Herod's prison, and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another? And 
And it seems to me that what's going on there is that John is going, I proclaimed the Messiah. I was the first prophet in 400 years. Uh, make straight the way of the Lord. I, I was the prophet and I'm in jail and this isn't looking good. Uh, what's going on? And what we see revealed in Jesus is his tenderness toward people who are doubting. Jesus didn't send his disciples back to scold John and say, John, you shouldn't doubt or just have faith or just read your Bible. Jesus didn't do that. He actually gave him evidence. He said, go back and tell him what you've seen and heard. And he talks about the miracles he was performing. And he referenced a prophecy that he knew John would understand. And so we see that Jesus was very tender with John when John doubted, and he's very tender with you. And so like we've been talking about, just encourage you to take those doubts right to the Father, because we all have a choice. We can do that. We can take our, our doubts, our anger, our even questioning of what we read in scripture and how could that be right? We can take that and throw that in his lap, or we can stand back and shake our fist at him and declare that he doesn't exist. We all have that right. But um, just as somebody who's walked through it, I would just encourage you to doubt honestly. Don't stuff it down. Keep right. the conversation going. Find people who can walk with you through it. And uh, I, I promise that if you're looking for the truth, you're going to find it. And, and a hungry doubter will do the work. And sometimes it takes a lot of work. But if you're hungry, you'll do it. Hungry doubters unite. I love that. The hungry doubter. And, and here's just... Another little thing to think about, my friends, um, when you get some time alone to read, if you love to read, um, maybe like me, you carry around a bag of books. Like you can't, you're reading like eight books at the same time, right? Yes. Um, I have, can you relate to that, Elisa? <laughs> and yet lately I have found like the Lord just calling me back. It's like, Trace, you just need to read the one. Yeah. You know, you just, sometimes you just need to pull back from all the input of all the other stuff and just get, get back to the word of God. I'm just so excited that I got to speak with you. Um, and thank you. Thank you for your, your honest work, your heart for God. And um, because of you doing such hard work, you've helped so many of us that um, have been stuck. And so I, I know you're going to help a lot of people find their way back to him. Thank you, Tracy. It's been such a joy to talk with you. What a great conversation. Loved it. I loved it. Such an honor. Thank you so much. God bless you, Elisa. You too. Thanks. Your Day Brighter is produced by Brighter Media Group, Tracy Tiernan and John Lawhon. Editing by Julie Gilligan. Make sure you're subscribed, leave a review and tell us what you think of the podcast and make sure you share it with someone who needs encouragement today. Thanks so much for listening and tell somebody your story today or better yet, ask to hear their story.